0: from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, starting in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Galgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture which says, They divided my garments amongst them, and for my my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, and the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her home, took her to his own home. We're going to sing... Once more, amen. As our brief devotional for this evening, if you'd like to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 19, just so you can uh, follow along, and to, uh, to set the scene for what's, uh, what's occurred... First, uh, we've had the Last Supper. That's happened traditionally on Thursday evening is when the disciples got together, had the Last Supper. Jesus famously uh, instituted uh, what we would refer to as communion when he said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood of the new covenant. So Jesus uh, did that. Then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed uh, all night. Uh, staying awake the entire night. And then uh, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, came and betrayed, to betray him, uh, walks up to Jesus and plants a kiss on his cheek. Uh, Jesus responds, Judas, have you betrayed me with a kiss? Uh, and then Peter, being the fiery hothead that Peter sometimes is in the Gospels, uh, he takes someone's sword and he cuts off someone's ear uh, and Jesus picks up the ear for the ground from the ground and somehow reattaches it miraculously and says, uh, the time for that has not yet come, which I think is amazing. Um, I mean, what would it be like if you were that guy? You're standing by the chief priest. You don't know really what's going on. Suddenly this crazy young disciple is lunging at you with a sword. Uh, Then you've got no ear and you're in pain. Start freaking out. What am I going to do? People are going to call me lefty for the rest of my life. And then Jesus walks up and just get back on doesn't tell us what happened to that guy. I wonder if he became a a believer, because there's certain things that pretty much would make you a believer. Jesus is then arrested. He's taken uh, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and he stands trial. He actually stands a a series of six trials uh, over the period of a a, a day or so. Uh, Many of those trials were actually illegal under both Jewish and Roman law, uh, and so we don't know really why they thought they could get away with it but get away with it they did jesus goes uh under trial he goes both to pilate he goes to herod he goes back to pilate he stands before the sanhedrin the jewish high council he stands before the chief priest the priest uh says to him are you the uh, are you the son of god are you the messiah and jesus replies to him i am and you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and seated at the right hand of the father in response to that the chief priest tore his garments he ran them in two and said blasphemy what more do we need and so jesus stood a series of trials jesus is taken and mocked uh, without mercy by the roman soldiers he is uh, taken to a place where they whip him and beat him he under, not, undergoes 39 lashes uh for those that wonder why 39 that's not a very round number it was very uh, apparent to the Romans that if someone was sentenced to 40 lashes, the amount of trauma they would undergo would actually kill them. It would be a death sentence. So Jesus was almost killed simply by lashing. In addition to that, he is uh, ridiculed. They have a crown of thorns that they push down onto his brow, uh, and they, they throw a purple cloak over his shoulders, and they hit him around the head, and they say, Prophesy who hit you after, after blindfolding him so he couldn't see prophesy who hit you. So he, he's mocked. Jesus is uh, severely beaten, as I mentioned. Uh, and all of this happens right before our passage in John 19. So if we start here in verse 16, this is what scripture says to us. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Galgotha. And so Jesus carries his own cross on his back as a Cross beam that would have weighed anywhere from 100 to 150 pounds of rough, unhewn wood. Uh, He would have carried that up the hill outside of the city while crowds gathered around to mock him. Some of the Gospels record that Jesus, uh, on that road to Golgotha, needed someone to carry his cross for him, a man called Simon of Cyrene. Verse 18 There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus. Between them. The Gospels, all four of them, simply use that phrase, and they crucified him. It doesn't give details because uh, crucifixion was very well known in the minds of those of this particular day. Everyone knew what crucifixion was, they knew what it entailed. For Jesus, it meant that he was hung on a wooden cross, he had nails that were driven through the palms of his hands and through the soles of his feet, that he would have. "...been there in an exhaustive state for hours on end, suffering immensely, and that he was not given the dignity of a crucifixion alone. He was crucified between two thieves to say that this man is less than we are." Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, "...Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And that has always really fascinated me, like Pilate saying that, Uh, mainly because I can sort of imagine most people in scripture being slightly sarcastic like I normally am. Um, and I can imagine Pilate looking at him and being, uh, at the chief priest and just being like, I've done everything you want and now you want the verbiage changed? Forget it. I'm out. Like, I, what I have written, I have written. You know, sometimes uh, when I'm designing stuff, when I do graphic design, uh, I take it to my wife and I show it to her and she says, this is great, but can you write this instead? Uh, and far too often I quote Pilot, I have written what I have written. Uh, do it yourself if you don't like the result. Like, come on, you're supposed to look at me and say, hey, this is lovely. Thank you, honey. Right? Am I right? Thank you. So Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What Pilate doesn't realize is something that Jesus had explained to him during one of his trials. He said, "Uh, you're king right now. You're the ruler of this area that we live in. Uh, My father is the king of all existence. And it's, I've been given over to you to fulfill his plan. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, But that's essentially what Jesus said to Pilate. He said, I have a kingdom, but it's far away. You don't know it yet. It has not yet come. Uh, And Pilate says, I'm a king. I've got all this control. I've got all this power. Where is your power if you're a king? And I think this is very interesting simply because God had a different plan. He needed Jesus to be labeled king of the Jews so that it would fulfill prophecy. And so Pilate, even without knowing it, sets the stage that Jesus is in fact king. And I want you to remember that because when we finish reading this, going through this story, I want to come back to that main focal point that Jesus is king. Ending the verses that we read a little earlier, it says this, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for uh, for it to see who it shall be. This was to fill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother-sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, which there's a lot of Marys to try and keep track of, just if you're ever studying scripture. Which Mary is it? I don't know. Swing a stick, you'll hit one. Um, So Jesus' possessions are taken... Um, I wonder how many of us would think that this in itself would be undignified, the fact that Jesus is crucified publicly, he's publicly shamed, he's publicly humiliated, he's beaten beyond all recognition. The book of Isaiah says that he, is, uh, he was marred so much that he did not resemble being human anymore, that he couldn't be counted amongst the sons of man. Uh, and so he then is publicly executed, crucified in front of all these people, including his mother. And then sort of the, the, one of the last insults is then they, they take his clothes. He doesn't even; His mother doesn't even get his clothes. Uh, I don't know. Some of these things, they stand out to me. They might stand out to you. But sometimes the absolute lack of respect that Jesus has shown uh, is just unreal. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved, a side note which I won't, I won't address again in this sermon, Uh, John wrote this gospel, and John wrote himself as the disciple as Jesus loved, which I always thought was just a little bit, you know, just a little bit arrogant. Who are you? I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, you're writing the story. Like, that doesn't... Anyway, we're moving on. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, "'Woman, behold your son.' And then he said to the disciple, "'Behold your mother.' And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. When Jesus addresses his mother as woman, it's actually culturally a sign of respect. I think I've mentioned this before, but it always bears mentioning again. Sometimes our culture and context can make it look like Jesus maybe is being disrespectful, saying, woman, like if I am a teenager and I go into, you know, when I was a teenager and I go into my mother, you know, I'm in my room and she comes in and says something to me and I say to her, woman, I'm doing it. I'm going to get beaten, is what's going to happen, and, and rightly so. But in this particular time, the term woman was actually uh, more of an honor, honorary thing. It, was, it actually bestowed dignity and worth on the person. That's why when Jesus, uh, in John chapter 4, goes to the woman at the well, he addresses her as woman. He restores dignity just in his way of addressing her. Jesus' first miracle, again recorded in the Gospel of John, is when he turned water into wine. Uh, and during that particular thing, his mother came to him and he said, and said, Jesus, we've drunk our way through the wine, can you make more? And Jesus says to her, woman, my time is not yet come. He uses this term often, and it's a sign both of endearment and, and respects. And one of the things that I absolutely love about the way that this ends is that it shows that Jesus takes care of his mother from the cross. I mean, can you imagine, most of us, if we were hanging there, in the, in the absolute um, uh, most amount of pain that a human can bear before they are before they they are killed um the word excruciating is latin and it means from the cross Um, it's a word that they didn't have a word to describe how painful crucifixion was and so they actually had to invent one to describe it and in that state when jesus is hanging on the cross he says to john uh, take care of her i love her Uh, To me, it shows the humanity of Jesus so much. We we know from Scripture that Jesus loves all of us, that he died for all of us, but his humanity, I believe, is fully on display here when he looks at his mother and says, I want her taken care of. It doesn't matter about my suffering. And that he trusted John in order to take care of his mother. Now, all that being said, it leads us back to this statement from Pilate, here is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. One of the things, in my experience, is that we segment the aspects of Jesus' nature to certain periods. When Jesus is doing works and miracles, he's the prophet, he's the priest, he's doing all this stuff... Uh, When Jesus is on the cross, he's the sacrificial lamb. And we don't think of Jesus really being king until the resurrection. We sort of segment these things so that we can define them, so we can celebrate them better. And and we'll get to Sunday in a couple of days, and we'll celebrate together Resurrection Sunday. And a lot of that is going to be focused on the kingship and lordship of Jesus, and rightly so. But one of the things uh, I've come to understand in my own study is that Jesus Christ is king on the cross, um, and I don't think we teach that enough. We, we, we look at the cross and we say, well, man, this is the sacrifice. Uh, it's to replace the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It's to do this. It's to do that. It's about the suffering. It's about the passion of Jesus. But really, tonight, what I want to just spend a, a couple of minutes more emphasizing is that Jesus Christ is king on the cross, Uh, On the cross, a bunch of stuff happens that is expounded later on in Scripture. Uh, The Gospels don't record a lot of the narrative of what happens during crucifixion, especially not from a theological standpoint. But what we know from Scripture is that a bunch of things happened on that cross. The the biggest thing that happened on the cross is something that Martin Luther called the Great Exchange. Uh, The Great Exchange is a very simple concept. It's that Jesus was everything we needed to be, and so what he did is he exchanged those over. Uh, as an example, uh, 1 Corinthians says that God, uh, Jesus rather, uh, became sin to those who knew no sin. And so Jesus, who is sinless, and us who are sinful, had our natures switched at the cross. Uh, again, Scripture tells us that Jesus uh, became our righteousness, that Jesus uh, or Jesus gave us to us his righteousness and took on himself our unrighteous, so us unrighteous, Jesus righteous, the great exchange, those two natures switched, again, on the cross of Calvary. Romans will say that the wrath of God, which was allotted to us because of our sinful nature, instead of being allotted to us, was then poured out onto Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Jesus took the wrath of God that was due you and me because we're sinners. This is what Luther called the great exchange. There's, there's dozens of these things. But every single one points back to one thing. Jesus is king on the cross. It's not, he doesn't become king at his resurrection. He is king on the cross. Several other things happen while Jesus is on the cross. Uh, during some of the other stories we read about it, that the sky goes dark for a period of time. Jesus' uh, suffering literally blocks out the sun from the world. Uh, there is an earthquake That the ground rumbles and scripture tells us it releases his dead now i've always found that to be kind of interesting because it doesn't give a lot of details and i'm not sure if you're like me or not but when there's not a lot of details given my mind fills in the blanks possibly in an almost heretical manner um so when it says that the dead are rising again i wonder are these zombies like how you know you're sitting you're sitting down to sabbath dinner and you're like oh i I wish Uncle Mordecai was here and then suddenly Uncle Mordecai sticks his head through the door and says, I'm here! And everyone's like, How did this happen? Was it a permanent thing? Did like they pop up for the Sabbath dinner and then later on go back to being dead? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, it's kind of infuriating. Like I said, I can get a little bit heretical sometimes. That's okay, you forgive me, right, Carol? She forgives me. The most important thing. Not the most important. One of the most important things that happened on the cross was that the temple veil tore. Now, a little bit of backstory. The temple was the place of worship in Jerusalem. If you were a Jew, that was where you worshipped God. Uh, The Jews had fought several wars with the Samaritans because they had actually made their own temple on a different hill somewhere else. Uh, and the jews didn't like that so they went over to where the samaritans were and they tore down their temple and said knock that off if you want to worship god you've got to do it in our temple true historical fact they literally did that that was one of the reasons why the jews and samaritans didn't like each other Um, for further reference see the woman at the well and see the good samaritan story Uh, and so the jews said this is the temple this is where you worship god uh, more than that, that the, the temple of God on one day a year was when the physical presence of God would descend in the form of a cloud, rest over the Ark of Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and then the high priest would go into the presence of God in that smoke and mist. It was, for, for anyone who was Jewish, this was the ultimate place of worship. And what was interesting about this is uh, after the temple had been rebuilt, this curtain was, was massive. It was some 30 feet wide, um, some 60 feet tall. We're not talking like, like one of these type t- small windows like you, you find in your house. No, we're talking like 60 feet tall, okay? Uh, 30 feet wide. This is, ma- this is a massive curtain. Uh, some historical evidence shows us that the, the curtain was thick. It was not just a, a single layer, but it was woven into each other Uh, to be several inches thick. This is a big curtain. And that curtain tears from top to bottom when Jesus rises from the dead, right, at his resurrection. (coughs) No, it, it tears at the moment of his death. Jesus is king on the cross. And the reason that the temple veil tearing is such a big deal is because it is what separated the presence of a holy God from a sinful world. Now, there was nothing magical about this cloth. It was symbolic. There was nothing holding back the Spirit of God because uh, God is all-powerful. He can do what He wants when He wants, but it was a very physical reminder to these real people that you could only enter the presence of God one day a year. That's it. And not every, everyone could. If you're a woman, you're out of luck. If you're not a Jew, you're out of luck. They have special courts for you on the outside of the temple. You can't even come in. You get the balcony seats. That's it. If you're a male Jew, you can go in certain far, uh, and then no further can you go. If you are a, a member of the priestly caste, then you can go a little bit further, but then only one man could actually go into the presence of God. When Jesus died on the cross, and that veil was torn from top to bottom, it signified that God access to God no longer went through one man, one day a year, but rather that you and I could go into the presence of God whenever we desired. One author said it like this: that when the veil tore from top to bottom, the Spirit of God forcibly invaded the world. I like that as a as a, as a mental image, that there was nothing holding back the Spirit of God anymore. That Jesus said that for those that believe, the Holy Spirit would live in our hearts that he would be our comforter and our guide when Jesus was gone and no longer with us. And so what I'm going to do is just end our time tonight with this. Uh, I've got a scripture as way of a benediction, which I'll read in just a minute. But I want you to understand that Jesus Christ is king. He was king at the moment of his birth. He was king at the moment of his death. And he is king at the moment of his resurrection. And scripture tells us this. That Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning on high. Too often we have this mental picture in our minds of Jesus in this battered and bruised state. And we can reflect on that during Good Friday. But the reality is, is that our King, our God, is seated on a throne in heaven, ruling and reigning right now. And that to me is amazing. That to me is why this is about, this is why we call it Good Friday. That we, we serve a King. We serve a king who not only rose from the dead, but a king who would sacrifice himself in the first place. Find a leader. Find a political leader. Find uh, a family leader. And ask yourself the question, if they would die for you. Because Jesus did. Amen? Amen? Amen. Jesus is king. And let's reflect on that.